It's Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff, Episode 7, Revenge of the Cisplex. Pew, pew. Helicopter noises. What are you doing? I'm uh, introducing the uh, latest episode of Terminal Talk. Didn't okay. you hear? Okay. And I thought I'd spice it up a little bit by doing it in the style of a 90s action movie. Ah. Is that cool? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Do you want to join me? Sure. I'll make the explosion noises. In a world where two men and one woman discuss machine learning. Machine learning. I'm learning. Is it going to get everything? Oh, no. Get the blockchain. The token fell out of my token ring. I'm trying to reroute the encryptions, but this pervasive encryption is too difficult. We're never going to get through. Keep trying. Colonel, get me the... Colonel. <laughs> See, I told you it's fun. I enjoy having fun, mm-hmm. especially at work, where things might not be fun without a little humor. It always kind of rubs me the wrong way when someone says, uh, you know, you guys have too much fun. You, you shouldn't be having this much fun. Right. You should be unhappy. Yeah. Watch the readership, the listenership grow after that. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> speaking of listenership, uh, I want to um, point out that we are now also available on the Stitcher platform as, as well as the Google Play and iTunes platform. So if you're using Stitcher, um, that's probably how you're listening to this. So, yay. Uh, tell a friend. Um <laughs> While you're telling friends, um, thanks to everyone on Twitter who helps spread around the episodes. That that really helps a lot. Uh, I can I can see in the referral log how people are finding the uh, the podcast, and uh, Reddit and Twitter are, are the big ones. So please keep that up. And a big thanks to Rich three three five Z. Sounds like, he sounds like a jerk. I don't know. I'm sure he'll tell us uh, <laughs> later in Reddit. I wonder who he is. I can only imagine. Yeah, him and Hotport Driver. I, I wonder who that is. It's a mystery. It's one we should dig into in one episode at some point. <laughs> also, thanks to Catherine, Tina, and Jen. Uh, Jen especially has all kinds of ideas. Uh, keep them coming. Yep. And Joanne, uh, who has uh, hit us from uh, Facebook. Thanks a lot, Joanne. Uh, big thanks to Big Indian Smalls and Soldier of Fortran, the the mainframe hackers. They're They're keeping the dream alive out there. And uh, this will make her happy. I'm just going to say thanks to my mom. She uh, she writes a, an email after every episode saying, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and it's great to have uh, a loyal fan. Yeah. I'm sure she's completely impartial, too. Uh, I'm sure she is. <laughs> hey, my mom won't listen, so, you know. Good point. So, we're, you know, with this podcast, we are going to be all over the place. We're, we're going to – some days there's going to be really deep dives. Sometimes we're going to keep it at a high level. The most important thing is just to get information out there in a hopefully easily digestible format so that, you know, when you're done, you say, well, that's something I didn't know before and, you know, I feel better because of it. Yeah, we want to encourage you that when you see a topic and you're like, eh, I don't know if this is right mm-hmm. for me, give it a few minutes because I think you're going to find that it actually is pretty interesting. Yeah, when, when we're picking our guests, it's not only, well, this person knows a whole lot about this topic, but they can also hold a conversation and, and kind of make it interesting. So, you know, we, we, we are uh, working hard on our guests here. Um, yeah, we spend an awful lot of time um, getting the guests to come in and, and finding the right people. It, it's actually the hardest part of the job uh, for me because that's the work that I generally do. Yeah, I was going to say the editing is uh, the hardest part, but that's that's the thing the that job I do. you yeah, normally yeah. do. Yep. So, so uh, 
the next couple of weeks can be kind of crazy, right? Yeah, we're uh, not going to spend a whole lot of time at our desks, I think. Luckily, we have a couple of shows recorded uh, in the hopper, and, and we're going to be busy running around the world. Uh, uh, Cher is coming up. I'm going to be at yep. Cher. Cher up in Providence, Rhode Island. Providence, Rhode Island. Yep. Yeah, hopefully uh, you know, get a chance to... Say hi to Donna and all the the crowd there. I mean, and and if you're if you're at Share and you see Frank, please feel free to go up and just have a conversation with him. Tell him everything you 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 want to talk to about the mainframe. Ask him to be a guest on the show and just you know eat up as much of his time as you possibly can. I really really appreciate that. Thank you. And by the way, <laughs> if you happen to be in say Melbourne, Australia. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I believe you're going to be vacationing in Vegas coming that's, up. That's if you, true. If you see Jeff, uh, especially in Vegas when he's supposed to be having fun, uh, you know, stop him and talk his ear off for an hour. It'd be great. All right. With uh, with that being said, we have a we have an awesome episode lined up for you. Although every episode is awesome so far. Would we tell them if it wasn't? No. We, we would try to make it sound good. Yeah. We'll have to, you know, we get one that's not quite as much push. We'll have to come up with some way of saying it without saying because i don't want to lie to him right right so if i say it's a very you know you know startorian presentation (laughs) and anything that doesn't resolve too good (laughs) (laughs) this person has a lovely speaking voice and i think you'll really enjoy it this person would be perfect if say you're coming up on nap time this person definitely didn't swear I think if we say this person really knows their stuff. <laughs> is that is that Probably. the dog whistle? Yeah, that's yeah. the dog whistle. Yep. But this episode is a good episode, and this person does really know their stuff. Well, and my theory has been doing this kind of work for quite some time, and I think it's going to be obvious that she not only knows her stuff, but that she's very excited about it and is really willing to talk about it. Between the two of us, we've, we've probably sat through hours and hours of presentations about analytics and machine learning, and it's it's easy to let, kind of let it wash over you. Uh, my theory puts it out in a way that's very easily digestible, and uh, you, you know, you just, it's oh, okay, that that makes sense now. It, it just really starts to resolve. And uh, we've talked to her in the past, and as soon as we put the podcast together, she's one of the first names we had. Is we need to have a conversation with her. So so glad to get her in here. Yeah, if if you listen to this. You'll be able to count on one hand the number of jargonish things she says. Oh, yeah. And the rest of it is, you know, real, oh, I get it now kind of content. So here we are, uh, Terminal Talk, Episode 7 with Frank and Jeff. <laughs> Hacking noises. Here comes another fresh episode of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. We're here with Maithili Venkatakrishnan. See, I did that right? You did. Nice job. Usually we just stick with Maithili. Yeah, it's like share. Safer, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) No one's going to say, Maithili who? It's true. Uh, Maithili is the uh, Z-Systems Analytics Technology Lead. She's a distinguished engineer in IBM Systems. So we were hoping you could tell us what the heck this machine learning thing is all about. Sure, sure. So machine learning is really about the ability of the system, about the capabilities to um, to help our clients predict what is likely to occur within their business environments based on 
historical data based on patterns. And rather than leave that all up to a manual process where you would have to um, obviously identify the use case, but identify all of the data elements, prepare it all, figure out which of the hundreds of algorithms to choose, which are the right features, what are the right characteristics of the algorithm, uh, train your model, deploy it, iterate on it, f- try to figure out how to provide feedback. All of that capability can really be put into a, a machine learning workflow. And so machine learning, or IBM's view of machine learning, is that we can deliver our clients much quicker return on their investment if we automate some of those processes provide a framework for that entire workflow so that it helps them be able to create these predictive models much more quickly. And a predictive model is really useful for our clients because they can now look at not just what were the trends, what happened before, but they can use that data to identify what's the likely chance of something to happen in the future, the likely chance that a transaction's fraudulent or the likely chance that, you know, Frank's going to buy what we're going to offer him. So it's not uh, us coming up with the, you know, the precursor to Cyberdyne. Right. 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 Not- <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it's really taking capabilities that our clients have uh, have been somewhat struggling to deploy in their business environments because it's very interesting technology. The statistics behind it has been around for years, obviously. Right. So it's not coming up with a brand new uh, way to do that that statistics more around how do you how do you use those capabilities and bring value to your business and how can we unify that experience so that it's easier that it's consistent um, on various platforms um, how can we add value to that whole process so you know before you you talked about this as a, as a workflow and obviously the models themselves are are very um, fairly complex mm-hmm. right how how complex is that flow the the flow is pretty complex and in you know in times that i've worked with clients in the past before we had some of the the machine learning capability around the workflow it's it's been a significant effort to uh, not just identify the data but prepare that data um there are lots of questions about how to select certain algorithms with something like machine learning, um, what we have now in the IBM offering is is a technology that helps our clients understand which of these algorithms is best fit, what the accuracy is of each of those algorithms as they get more and more data to uh, to, to be able to consume that data. So a a view of accuracy over the amount of data that's that's fed for fed into the algorithm. Um, so that gives them a very visual way to select the algorithm. Um, there are lots of, uh, of parameters that could affect, uh, affect a given algorithm. For example, if you have a tree-based algorithm, how deep should your tree be? What are the number of leaves? How many trees should you have? Those are called hyperparameters, right? And this capability also allows our clients to get some some idea of how to optimize those hyperparameters. Uh, so there are lots of characteristics around, uh, you know, deploying, developing, and deploying machine learning that are very cumbersome, and and can be helped by this kind of tooling. 
And how much does that type of data differ from one shop to the next? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think it varies a lot, which is why uh, these capabilities have to be more than generic, right? There's not one best algorithm uh, ever, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It really depends on the data that's going to be consumed, and that's why – Things like the cognitive assist capability for identifying which model takes the actual data that's, that the customer has, right, and looks at that if you feed it 500 data points, 1,000 data points, 10,000 data points. How does the accuracy of that model change for that client-specific data? We're talking about our customers' business assets, right? We're talking about their core banking data. We're talking about their um, – you know, clearinghouse data, their credit card information data, their claims information data, tax information. So it can vary, you know, it, significantly, even within an industry, it can vary significantly. And can you explain um, just what a data point is? Sure. So a data point um, would be uh, the input that you would feed a model. Right. And that can come from a variety of data sources. So what we're talking about when we say a data point is really um, the input parameters to a given model. And those input parameters can come from 10 different data sources that you have to prepare somehow. Mm-hmm. So it's not a given, you know, uh, a, a given row in a table. It's, it's, you know, a particular cell of information in this table, a particular set of information from this unstructured source. It can it can really vary quite a bit. Those are the input, the actual input values to a given model. And that can range uh, significantly, right? It can be a few inputs. It can be hundreds of inputs. But but I was told I could just take a, a pile of data yeah. and throw the word algorithm at it, and yeah. and then I've done analytics and I'm done. Is... Right. You, you've done something. Okay. Right? Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> you've run an algorithm. Uh-huh. <laughs> Assuming that you put the right types of data into it, you've run an <laughs> algorithm, right? Um, what you get out of it, and would you bet your business decision on it, that could be a little different. <laughs> well, we've seen some of Jeff's business. Really yeah. So um, let me ask you this. What you describe sounds very human intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, the whole point of the tooling that you've created is to make it less human intensive, right? Yeah. And it's, and it's certainly not not me. It's, it's what IBM has put forward as, you know, the, our machine learning strategy across all of our platforms. And what we've done on Z in the mainframe and what, uh, what IBM has done is made available the machine learning capability on Z, on the mainframe, right? And we've built a runtime to, to support that. So the, the value is really in being able to take that human intensive long stretch of time that it takes to, to do all of those things and really bring it down to more um, interaction with the machine learning capability rather than intensive labor or specific coding because that you know that process is labor intensive it's hard for clients to change it um, once you deploy a model it, it doesn't last forever right I mean its accuracy can change based on you know the transactions that it's seeing from you um, the information that it's getting about your your social interactions the information you might be getting on geopolitical issues that's that model accuracy can change and you want to be able to d- detect that. Um, again, a very manual process without some kind of framework to support that. And that concept is really IBM's machine learning capability. And what we've done 
within systems, within Z, it's really built a runtime so that these models can have very um, optimal access to the variety of data we have with an abstraction layer so they don't have to know about the gory details of figuring out if it's vSAM versus IMS or what it is, right? Um, somebody has to do that, but the application, the analytic application doesn't have to do that. Um, we've built a runtime for the data access for advanced analytics that are consistent with other platforms, industry standard application, analytic application environments. So from a systems perspective, we've really focused on creating a robust runtime so that those analytic applications and the machine learning application can really run right on the platform. You've, you've talked about uh, the fact that we've basically provided a platform uh, and we've we've shrunk the amount of work that that a client needs to do to get into this. Do we have to help them set this up, or do we kind of give them something and they just go off and run with it? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. I think it's a combination. Um, the best uh, examples we have of success is when the client brings to the table the stakeholders, the lines of business, the applications that are actually going to get business benefit from this kind of cognitive capability. Um, they have to partner with, you know, platform people and data people. But if it's not really driven by how much value am I going to get out of this model being deployed, right, then the, 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 the whole cycle is, 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 uh, is broken somewhat. So the best examples is when the client does bring the stakeholder to the table to talk about that use case, scope out the use case, we have uh, we have help available to help them, you know, install and config and get going. Um, from a runtime perspective, we we make available things like uh, Apache Spark on a on a public cloud. So if they don't want to install it, um, they can play with that for thirty days at a free trial, see what it's like. You know, um, we're trying to reduce the barriers to entry. Right. One of the things we know is that. Um, is that all of the people that want to do analytics don't necessarily in their organization have free access to the mainframe mm-hmm. or easy access to the mainframe. So as you know, Frank, right, um, interfaces are, are key, right? So interfaces for applications, interfaces for application programming, that's one of the reasons we standardize on looking at um, open source runtime capabilities for exploitation. We started with Spark. We are now, we just announced that uh, we'll be supporting Python and the Anaconda stack uh, with the new announce that we just um, did on July 17th. So it's it's a real focus on interfaces that are consistent so that it is more in self-enabling of that analytic. Today, it's true that we are helping our clients to get started. Um, and that's not necessarily just true in the mainframe space. I mean, our clients are fairly nascent on this machine learning path, right? Yeah, it seems that in order to do machine learning well, you, you have to have a good math background. Yeah. Um, and, and you still also have to have a good business background. Right. And that's that's a really important um, example. I worked with a client some time ago that uh, had um, an organization that was focused on data science. And they had great math skills, and they had hired a you know a, a great group of uh, you know young employees that had uh, statistical backgrounds and, and good math skills, but they hadn't paired them 
with anybody that knew what the business data was or the value of it or uh. what parts to extract um, or understood the process you know the the flow of what happens during that during that transaction and where does this this transaction go if they approve it or deny it etc and so part of our role in that in that uh, um, engagement was really to bring those two groups together within the client organization right and so you do have to have both the machine learning capability tries to help with some of that because Data science skills are at a significant shortage in the industry, um, and that's uh, not certainly not just in IBM, but everywhere. So our clients are having a tough time, you know, finding the data science skills, hiring them, and retaining them. And so as a result, things like machine learning that can identify, you know, what here are the three best algorithms, and here's how their accuracy will change depending on how much data you feed it, and let us help with the monitoring so that when there's degradation, it helps you identify when you have to do something so that you can really target those valuable data science skills to what they need to be doing and not focus as much on the, you know, the, the labor intensive parts that can be automated. I remember like five years ago, the, the one piece of career advice everyone was, was throwing out is um, if you're going into college or you're thinking of going back, uh, become a data scientist. Yeah. Is, is that still true yeah. uh, and or is there any twist on that? Um, it's still true. Um, one of the things that uh, that I believe is that the, the data scientists that have the most significant value are the ones that also do significant internships in either one or two particular industries that they're most interested in. Um, and I, I spoke to a, a number of grad students up at SUNY um, about a year ago and I gave them the same advice, which was – Data science is great. Learn the math. Go, you know, enjoy the tools. Learn Python. You know, learn R. Learn about Spark. Um, really enjoy that space from what you what you understand for the algorithms. But in order for it to make a difference to a particular business, why not go out and if you are interested in the financial services uh, sector, understand what clearinghouse processing means, understand what a core banking process does, understand if there are formats or data types that are more relevant, like um, something that comes from SWIFT or card data, or if you're interested in healthcare, focus on that. I mean, there are, there are much more valuable skills um, that I think our data scientists can bring when they walk in with some understanding of these industries. Uh, you mentioned uh, picking the right algorithm earlier, and I, I would imagine that uh, understanding the business is a uh, going to be a huge player into uh, above purely the academics of yeah. Uh, that. Yeah, it, it's true, um, and so there's different characteristics, right? Um, certainly, accuracy is one really big factor in selection of algorithms, and the um, cognitive assist tooling that's part of machine learning can help with that. The other thing that we're seeing, um, and this is a, a live example from a customer engagement currently, is that if you're going to deploy the model as part of a transaction, the other thing to consider is your SLAs, right? Mm -hmm. um, what if your transaction runs for, you know, 20 milliseconds and you pick a model that although highly accurate takes a hundred or two hundred milliseconds to run. Are you going to then execute when you come to the point of deploying that model? Are you going to be able to take that transaction and insert 
something that's going to be 5x the time that your, your whole transaction is, right? Are you willing to do that? Are you going to really be able to score every transaction at that point, right? So there's a balance. There's a accuracy, which from an ac- academic's point of view, from a, um algorithm point of view, you want the best, most accurate algorithm. Um, you don't want it to be overfit either, which means you, you want to have an algorithm that's able to take new data and score it accurately, not just be perfectly fit for all your historical mm-hmm. data, right? And that's another balance. Right. But there's accuracy, there's how fit it is, there's the nature of uh, how many true positives um, compared to how many, you know, false, false positives. So you want to be able to understand those parameters, but you also have to look at how does this run, right? How does, how, how am I going to be able to use it? Because in the end, that's, that's the business value. Yeah. Cause it, it sounds like it, it's very possible that if you over-engineer something, yeah. a correct algorithm could be uh, a failure and not a success because it kills your SLAs. It could. It just, could. Just because it's right doesn't mean it should be done. Right. That's right. That's right. So you have to look at the whole process. Um, and some of that is really, it's, it's skill based too, right? So an understanding of I've created the perfect, most wonderful, accurate algorithm and I'm really happy with it. But I don't understand that the thing I'm going to have to, the transaction I'm going to have to insert this, the scoring model into um, runs a thousand transactions a second at 20 milliseconds, and that's what I have to work with, right? And if you don't understand the business process mm-hmm. there, then maybe you know you would you would make a different decision um, in terms of which algorithm and the trade-offs. It's all trade-off. Let, let's say I'm a I'm a DBA and I, I kind of have a good idea about all the the data that, that flows through my shop, mm-hmm. um, and I'm excited about machine learning analytics. Um, what can I do to interact with that data abstraction layer to, to make sure that my stuff uh, gets to play? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, and there's probably, if you're one DBA, there might be three or four of you for the other data environments that are supported, right? Because it's not just mainframe data. Right. Um, so one of the things that you could do is really use the capabilities we've provided at the runtime level um, to configure your data sources into uh, this runtime, right? And that's the abstraction layer for the data that we've provided. The nice thing about the abstraction layer, it also gives you some control over determining what's the view of this data that I want my data scientists to use. Mm. So I have a table that has, let's say, social security numbers in it. You understand as a as an intelligent data science savvy DBA that Maybe the social security number is not a key feature for most models, right? Uh, it's a piece of information um, that's in the table, the original table, but may or may not be probably not a feature. At the same time, it's it's uh, PII, it's private private information that is monitored, controlled. Many clients are very sensitive to that information getting out. So you could create a view that doesn't have that column at all. It's that table without that column. You could create a view that has that table with that particular column obfuscated. So you can have fake data in there, right? So as a DBA, you can really take control over what data should be made visible to the broad set of data scientists, because data scientists might not have the information you have about how to protect that data, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they might be interested more in the academics of, I just want all the data. I want to use it all. I might leave it sitting on my laptop in some Jupyter notebook and go get a coffee. Uh, maybe that 
That, that sounds like fun. Yeah, you know, but, <laughs> but maybe from a DBA's point of view, that doesn't work well in terms of data protection, right? If something were to happen or that w- that information did get, uh, you know, inadvertently into the wrong hands, right? So protection, the the abstraction of the data, the configuration of the data, all things that you can do through uh, interactive tooling that we've provided with the runtime, um, data protection is another piece. Um, the other thing that uh, we've done is integrate um, our runtime capability with the uh, IBM ap- application uh, discovery tool, the IBM ADDI, right? right. Um, because can, you might have hundreds of data sets and thousands of data sets potentially to configure into this abstraction layer. So doing it manually, bit by bit, um, can can also be cumbersome. Right? Oh, yeah. So wouldn't you rather have something that would go collect this information as it does today, because that's what that tool does, stuff it into a relational data store, and then have our runtime automatically query that 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 uh, that store and map the virtual tables that you choose it. You know, you can make an X mark or just select the tables that you want to that you want to be mapped into our runtime. Have that virtual table definition uh, much more automated. Yeah. So, so don't just hand over the keys and say make something out of this. <laughs> right. Well, I think it's important. Right? You show that uh, DBAs. And, have a much bigger responsibility than yeah. Gee, I got to put uh, I got to put a new index in here, or yes. <laughs> right. It's more than just a performance. It's not job. just um, can I have access to all your data, right? It's how do I want my data scientist to access it? Do I want them to move all of that data for analytics, or can they leverage some things in place? Which is the whole purpose of of what we've done with the integration to the mainframe. Um, can I encryption. make? Yeah, pervasive <laughs> encryption, exactly. We're required to say it every 10 minutes. Yeah, okay, it's good, yeah. good. It's, we've been almost 20 now. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Frank, do you want to... We'll do it twice later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, um, it, it really does play to that, though. I mean, it, it does. If, if you're keeping stuff on platform, it'll be encrypted. Right. If it's on somebody's notebook who's going to leave it unlocked, bad. You don't. You don't know. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think the other part of it is um, there's a, a big partnership between the applications people, the data folks, and the data scientists that would make this the, the, that, that the ideal kind of engagement rather than the data scientists get the data uh, dumped into some format right down the road every other day and then they just sit in an isolated setting and work on that data. They, they could potentially produce some insight, but is that insight relevant to the most current data? Did that structure get set up in a way that was efficient for the organization? Did data get protected? You know, is the privacy maintained? Is the governance there? Is, is the encryption maintained? All of that may or may not have happened if, you know, if the data scientists execute in isolation. Hmm. And this is really, really important point, right? Is that, uh, rather than, ETLing, which is actually pretty expensive yeah. for, for customers and, and they don't always realize it, but instead of doing that and, and having your data scientists work on increasingly stale data, mm-hmm. um, we're providing the capability of, right. of taking advantage of new stuff. And when we call it data in place and federating your analytics so that it's not, to me, it's not just a, a Z statement. You're going to have vast amounts of data on x86, potentially vast amounts of data on power and on Z, right? So run the, the bulk of your analytics closest to the source that's generating that data 
and then blend the insights into a more coherent, smaller, some maybe even some of that data is obfuscated, mm-hmm. right, um, capability so that you can then point your exploratory data scientist at that smaller subset. But you're still running analytics at, at the source of the data and keeping it in place and leveraging whatever the security and governance is that has been placed on that data because of the transactional needs and the business requirements. So most of this data from a Z perspective, our clients have done a lot to understand how it should be protected, how it should be governed. There's all kinds of access controls on it. Now we've got the pervasive encryption, right? All of that's been done. So why move it all and then try to figure out how to recreate all of that based on where the data came from Hmm. at varying levels, right? Um, Why not just use it? Right. And then focus on what, what the data scientist is supposed to be doing, which is really focusing on the, the algorithms, the selection, the model creation, the integration with the business process. So we do a fair amount to help them do that selection too, right? And we do. We do. In terms of the model selection, this, that's the, um, the cognitive assist capability from IBM machine learning that I spoke about. And it's a, it's a visual, um, representation of the, the key models that are the best fit, I would say, in terms of accuracy, um, for the, the, the specific data that you're feeding it. Um, and then you'll see what you'll see is a, a graph that will plot the accuracy and how that accuracy changes based on the number of data points that you're feeding the model. So a model might be, you know, 90% accurate at 1,000 data points. Maybe it's 92% accurate at 20,000, or maybe it's 85% accurate at 20,000. <laughs> it's not always an upward trend, right? right? Mm-hmm. So you, you might see models that start off, model algorithms that start off at one particular accuracy that either go up or down, as the number of data points increase. And that's really what you want to focus on in terms of, you know, how is this model going to trend? How is this algorithm going to trend? You, you mentioned the accuracy going down as more data points are, cl- how can that? Yeah. Well, it depends on if, you know, a model can be, um, can be overfit, as I mentioned, right? Oh, okay. So, so if you have something that's very, tailored to your your particular data that you have, then what you end up with is maybe a model or an algorithm that doesn't um, accept new values um, as easily because that's really the goal. The historical data is meant to train the model. Um, and so typically when you create a model, you'll take all of the data you have, you'll break it into some percentage, two-thirds, one-third is very common. So you'll train it with two-thirds of the data. So you get some, some efficiency in the training and then you'll feed it the one third for testing, as it were, to understand, okay, how accurate is this model based on data that it hasn't yet seen? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then because in the end, when we deploy it, it's going to get brand new data that it's never seen. And what it's really looking at is how closely does this match the pattern that I know about from the historical data. So you mentioned uh, Python and R and, and those are, are cool languages. Do you often have to explain to people that they don't have to do those on a green screen in order to, yeah. to work on the mainframe? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a combination because I speak to clients, um, that have, uh, that have data scientists. I, have, I speak to clients that have Z folks, right? And so one of the common fears 
from the non-Z community at those large clients, right, is what does that mean? Do I have to, you know, it, does this mean I have to write my Python and actually in COBOL <laughs> on the green screen? It's like, n- no, it's just Python and you can use um, a very um, common industry um, interface that we call notebooks, Jupyter notebooks, J-U-P-Y-T-E-R for Python. Um, and that's not an IBM tool, right? It's an industry industry uh, tool. And it's a it's an interactive visual way to write analytics um, in in uh, in Scala as we started, and now we're introducing Python, and uh, eventually we'll introduce R as well. But what happens is you write your little analytics segment, and you get the results right away. It's it's visual. You can get not just a tabular form. You can click on widgets to get that in in graphical formats. Um, so it's the same tooling. My point is the same tooling that those data scientists would use if they were to point their their uh, Jupyter notebook at an x86 environment. Now they can point their Jupyter notebook at a mainframe, Spark, Python, Anaconda environment and have that same experience. Now, it's, it's not complete magic, right? There was a DBA, a system administrator, that had to configure, authorize um, that you know, data scientists to have access to the data and configure those data sources into the abstraction layer, as we spoke about. So it's not complete magic, but to the data scientists, they are not dealing with green screen. Um, but you do have to explain that. Because right? it's a common fear. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the past, when I've heard people talk about analytics and machine learning, um, I think a mistake they make is, we're going to talk about analytics so to install Spark, you do X, Y, Z. Uh, if, if I'm somebody who's interested in in all this, how, what can I do in my learning to make to, to kind of decouple the um, the the abilities from the specific tools that tend to come and go? Yeah, um, well, that's a great question. I mean, there there's a there's a process around analytics and cognitive and machine learning that I think is completely independent of tooling. So the idea of identifying a good use case that makes sense for a predictive algorithm, identifying the, the process of identifying the data, the, the, the uh, transformations of that data, um, the algorithm selection, that whole process and understanding that flow is not specific to whether you're using Spark or you're using our IBM machine learning built on Spark or you're using you know, R and you're, and you're, and you've got a, uh, or you're doing it right out of a shell interface via a Jupyter interface. None of that is relevant to understand that process. So starting with a basic understanding of, of those capabilities, I think is a great foundation because then you can determine based on, um, if you're a big organization, maybe it's based on the skill you have. Am I going to go Spark? Am I going to go Python? Am I going to go R? Um, or if you're an individual looking to learn more, maybe it's based on um, ease of ease of learning, right? And so, uh, typically, you know, people would, would say, I think that Python's easier to learn than R. It's it's easier to pick up. The popularity of the data science tools are there. There's a huge set of libraries already built um, for data science that are part of the Python community. So that's a great place to start. I would say. Um, I think. Talking about installing software is not the place to start, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so what, some of the things we've done to help with that is the the 30-day free trial. Now we have where anybody can sign up for 
access to Spark on ZOS, and they don't have to install it. And yep. there's sample data there. You can put your own data there. And we'll you can put just, a link to the uh, Z trial program out in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. You just you know, and it's it's thirty. You can renew it if you want to, but it's a it's it's a, you know a thirty day start. And that takes out the issue of, you know, do I have my system programmer install it? You know, how do I, what do I do with access to my data? I have to have that whole debate with my DBA. It's all there, right? And um, and you can then focus on the analytics as opposed to a very specific tooling infrastructure. Hmm. Um, and the other thing I would encourage is to really look at the open source runtimes. Um, the proprietary uh, capabilities are still out there. You know, so there's still a lot of SaaS in our client shops. Um, I'm not saying there isn't. Well, there's a lot of SaaS in this room, too. <laughs> yeah, there is from that side. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> but, um, you know, more and more, the skill base that's emerging from universities really understands the open source technologies. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. I told you she was going to be good. I don't know why I ever doubted you. The only problem is... You know, how, where do you go from there? Uh, I think we top that with a fresh installment of What's, What's up, up With, with that? that? What's up with that? So I, I know that with this podcast, we, we have a, a, a fair amount of listeners at this point. Um, I think that a lot of for a lot of people, this is the only podcast they listen to. It was certainly the first one. And because uh, I had to set up uh, the podcast app on some people's phones um, and send them the links and stuff like that. So I really hope that this isn't um, still the only podcast people listen to because there's a lot of awesome stuff out there. Yeah. We actually started listening to a bunch of podcasts together as we would do some of these long drives. And if you've got a, a daily commute or you travel a lot, there's nothing better than like looking down at your phone and saying you have five new episodes and it's stuff that you've custom picked out that you want to listen to. And you say, OK, great. I, I'm going to get all caught up. It's uh it makes the time go by faster, especially – I know that when I'm traveling by plane, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I can, I can do some work on that plane. And then when you get into your seat and you realize you have no elbow room and you can't open up your laptop, it's like, oh, well, well now what? Oh, okay, I can get caught up to date on you know, My Favorite Murder or you know, Last Podcast on the Left or something like that. Well, and you don't even have to have something long, right? I mean um, one of the neat things about the TED Talks, especially the TED Talks tech – uh, you can hear those in 10 minutes or yeah, 20 minutes and you'll be done. Yeah. So I thought it would be a, a kind of a good um, thing to just run through a bunch of podcasts that uh, that we like and you can look them up. We're going to – it's going to take a while, but I'm going to put a bunch of the links for these out in the show notes. Uh, you can certainly search for them too. Um, but for, for tech podcasts, uh, Security Now is one of those long podcasts. It's very exhaustive um, but very, very thorough. Um, Reply All is kind of a fun social slant on technology. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, mainframe performance topics. Those uh, there's commas in between there. It's a uh, an IBM podcast that uh, if you listen to a certain episode, you uh, might, might use, even hear uh, us. some familiar uh, voices on it there. Uh, and of course, um, Frank, I know you're a big fan of the the Stuff You Should Know podcast. Yeah, I think the the Stuff You Should Know again. That's an hour. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of an investment, but well worth the time. Uh, you really can learn about a bunch of different things. And there's a bunch of stuff podcasts, like stuff you missed in history class, stuff you're they don't want you to know, and you should check them all out. They're very informative and uh, very well put together. Yeah, and if you're really going to be in the car for a long time, a podcast is a great, really a great way to 
to eat up that time. Especially some of the there's more episodic ones where they they'll spend a whole season talking about um, a specific like uh, true crime or thing about history. So uh, one of the ones that we listened to on a um, on a very long car trip was uh, was S Town. Yeah, and the neat thing about something like that is that you can grow in your understanding of of something. The neat thing about S Town is it's this really a very slice of life in a world that we're just not connected with, right? It's funny about the um, S-Town, and it, which is based on Serial, another one you should be listening to. They had two full seasons so far. As you say, oh, it's, the great thing about it is you can listen to them like you know, 45 minutes at a time. There's always one day when you just end up binge listening to 12 episodes. <laughs> so um, along those lines, there's one called Missing Richard Simmons, uh, which kind of talks about, hey, whatever happened to Richard Simmons? Uh, breakdown uh, talks about breakdowns in the um, Atlanta uh, criminal justice system and Crime Town. Each uh, each season takes a look at some sort of aspect of um, high profile crime in a town. Uh, actually, the the first one was in Providence, Rhode Island. So uh, if you're going to share, you might want to listen to that one on the way. Well, and there are a bunch of things that may not have anything to do with pure learning that you might want to get into. One of the fun ones I listen to is We Hate Movies, and which they go through and and uh, kind of follow a particular movie and, and, and talk about it. Maybe it's a bit much uh, for some people, but it's it's just kind of a fun way of, of hearing other people's perspective on stuff. And if you're not a fan of uh, We Hate Movies, there's also The Flop House. They talk about movies that have flopped. Uh, rewatchability, they uh, watch movies that were big maybe 10, 15 years ago and see, does it still hold up? Uh, if you're into history, there's stuff you missed in history class. There's also The Dollop, which is a bi-weekly American history podcast. Um, and uh, Dumb People Town is just go through the news and talk about things that <laughs> dumb people have done during the past week. Well, I think and this is just stuff that we've kind of rolled off. If you do any kind of real search on a, on any of the uh, podcast um, venues, you're going to find a few things that you're going to be interested in listening to. All you do is set them up and uh, – the new stuff comes to you and, and you get to listen to stuff whenever you want. Um, and, and last last column in the kind of uh, slice of life and huh kind of podcast, uh, check out Every Little Thing where they examine a small aspect of life and kind of the stuff that goes into it. Song Exploder, they, uh, they take a song and break it apart into its basic components, talk about how it got uh, made. That's pretty interesting. Uh, this American Life, uh, it's the NPR podcast, uh, it always starts out as, yeah, I guess I'll listen to this. And then by the end, you're telling everybody, oh, my God, there was this great podcast. You need to listen to this. Uh, similar to that, 99% Invisible. That yeah, they. Every, I'm, I think every single time I listen to a 99% Invisible, I end up posting about it. Um, so that's it's, it's about uh, design and human life. Uh, Criminal is great. And uh, You Are Not So Smart. You Are Not So Smart talks about um, the little foibles we have with our brains and uh, coming to grips with reality. So there's lots of stuff out there. Um, and I think the best thing about podcasts, the, thing, the reason I really like them, is that there's nothing standing between a couple people who have an idea and an audience. And if it's good, it, it stays on the air. Yeah, and we're still on the air. So Yeah, yeah. look at us, seven episodes. <laughs>
uh, bringing it back around to social media. If you're on Twitter, uh, please say hi. Please uh, help spread the word around there. Um, if you want to send us emails, contact at TerminalTalk.net. And don't forget to put something on your media provider so that uh, other people can see that you like our show. Lastly, if there's any subjects uh, you want to see covered or people you want on the podcast, please let us know. Uh, we can't pick up your brainwaves just flying around out there. You have to let us know. As far as we know, we're doing an amazing job. Uh, and if, if there's room for improvement, please, please let us know. I think you're doing an amazing job, Jeff. Thank you, Frank. You're one of my favorite people in this room right now. Okay. Terminal Wait. Talk, Episode 7. <laughs> You can't handle the porn live. <laughs> You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.